Hello and welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast where you get to enjoy our ignorance. Well, apart from Father Dave's, because you can't enjoy what doesn't exist. Apart from the five seconds it takes for him to work out that he was in fact correct and he has now confirmed that and we can now proceed. Welcome to today's episode, only this time, Father Dave, I suspect that it's not just Marty and I who are coming into this episode feeling like we are going to learn something. I would imagine that you're actually pretty excited to learn something in this episode as well. I'm enjoying not having to say much at all in this episode. I can just kick back and slack off and let somebody else be the expert. Well, (laughs) Father Dave, would you mind introducing this particular episode? Because this has come off your bat and this is a, a dovetail into our episode on the Eucharist, which we did allude to in the last episode. But Father Dave, could you please explain how this episode has come about? Around the time when Marty was pondering whether we should do a series on the sacraments, I had been chatting to one of our parishioners who is a doctor working at the emergency department at Royal Darwin Hospital, who just happens to be translating a book on Eucharistic miracles. What a coincidence. He's holding that up so you guys can see, but other people can't hear him holding up the book. He was telling me about this book on Eucharistic miracles, and I thought we should do an episode on this. And about a day later, Marty suggested we should do a series on the sacraments. So it all kind of fell together pretty well. Nice. So um, rather than us trying to pull together our ignorance about Eucharistic miracles, we've got someone who's actually and, read a whole and, lot about this. And rather than us actually reading the book after it's translated, <laughs> we can just now, Marty, talk this should about be a it. test for your Italian. How good is your Italian? Well, I saw, I saw Gesù on the cover. Yes. So this is... Un cardiologo visita Gesù. That's the title in English, in, in Italian. The t- title in English will, will be something like Jesus and his cardiologist or some, something like that. We'll see what the, the publisher oh. will want to make of it. So now I haven't actually mentioned who this actually is. I, I've mentioned that he's yeah, That wasn't Marty. That wasn't Marty speaking with an Italian accent. I pay this cash is... to do a good job. It's very thick. It's very strong. <laughs> <laughs> this is Umberto Villa. Yeah, so Bert, I just got Bert. Otherwise known as Bert, that's Bert. Like the Australian version. Now, am I right? You're actually stuck here. You weren't intending to be living here this long. Well, I'm pleasantly stuck here. That's what <laughs> happened to our great, 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 great <laughs> grandparents. I've got a great job. I'm, I'm in a safe place. Um, but yes, I'm sort of stuck in a way that, you know, if I went home for a holiday, I'd probably be stuck outside Australia for good. So, yes, I'm stuck like everyone right. else. Welcome to <laughs> Australia. Yeah. And um and you and you can't go home until this episode's finished at least. Probably not, nor receive visits from relatives or anyone. But that's life. And you are you are Dr. Bert. Oh yes, but I I'm not used to being called. <laughs> <laughs> but you do but you do work in the same field I that you've got yeah. a degree in. Right, just clarifying. I Damn. This is on. This is a. Uh, long, you can you can Google me on on the APRA website. You can find that I'm not a scam. <laughs> that was actually Marty having a go at Sam about Sam not being qualified as an engineer. But anyway. No 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 no. I'm qualified. I don't work. You're qualified. As well. You just haven't worked in that field. No. <laughs> you can also Google me, but it won't prove anything. <laughs> Righto. Eucharistic miracles. These are... So Bert, we're pretty much going to hammer you with questions Go for at it. this point. I'll answer um, all I can. <laughs> so tell us about Eucharistic Miracles. What's the story? All right. So this book talks about only 
five Eucharistic miracles out of probably hundreds that have happened. And I found it really fascinating because this Italian cardiologist did a good job at sifting out the ones that were actually studied by science. And among those, he also sifted out the irrelevant bits and the relevant bits so that he came up with a a clear picture of all of them and then collated the results. And by doing that, he essentially pulled out a very interesting pattern that's common to all of them. It involves the same identical tissue that's found, which is always heart muscle tissue, and the same blood group that's always AB. And um, then there's a common pattern about the DNA as well, which is very interesting because it's a DNA that... Yeah, escapes ex- escapes analysis in a certain way. Oh, hang on. I was going to ask you a question, but hang on. Let's come back to that bit. The DNA escapes analysis. Does it does. Explain that further. So the way that DNA profiling is done these days, um, you know, by police, for instance, they look at these repeated sequences that we all have in parts of our DNA that are actually useless for us. So we don't really know what their purpose is. It's called junk DNA, we all have a whole lot of junk DNA that's got these known repeated sequences. And, and we all have variable numbers of repeated sequences. So what they, you know, and this is the way that DNA profiling is done to determine identity. You look at these sequences, you look at how many you've got. And then once you identify at least 12 types of these sequences, then you have a, a profile that's pretty much 99 accurate, which will stand up in court, essentially, you know, to incriminate someone, for instance. But um, with the DNA that was found in the Eucharistic miracles, what they found was good quality DNA material. But when they probed the DNA itself with the molecular probes that look for these sequences, they could not identify these sequences, except for one of the five miracles, which is a Polish miracle that happened in Lignica, um, which is Western Poland. And in that one, they managed to find two of these sequences, but the profile has not been disclosed to the public and it's kept confidential. But otherwise the overall pattern is you look for it, you find it. It's usually not great quality because it's often ancient, degraded. Sometimes it's good enough, but you can't really find the sequences for identification of a person. Right. And sorry, this is a little bit random, but medically, AB, the blood type, is that universal donor? So um, it's the universal receiver. Receiver. Universal receiver. So it's, it's a very interesting, oh, it's a very interesting point because, you know, you would ex- expect a divine blood type to be one that you could just donate universally. To everyone. Instead, it's a it's a universal receiver. He, the author, makes an interesting reflection on this in terms of recapitulation theology and the fact that our blood can be accepted by the blood of Christ, purified by the blood of Christ, and it, it's a complete you know it's a complete blood type that recapitulates all the blood types that are you know around in the world, even blood type zero or blood type O, as they call it in, in Italy, because the zero or O blood type uh, is nothing but 
a simpler molecular version of all the other types of antigens that determine blood groups. So, you know, you add a sugar molecule and it turns into, to, you add a sugar molecule to A and it becomes B, or you add two and it becomes A. So it recapitulates all of them into one. And it's also very interesting in terms of, you know, the meaning of that is that AB is the only blood type that where you can get, you know, the, the apparent must have, must be A and apparent and the other parent must be B. Let's say you had a, a cross between uh, an A parent and, a, and an O parent. You will never know which parent contributed the A allele. Whereas with the AB, it, it is certain. <laughs> it has to come from one and the other. So that, that's important when it comes down to a lot of theories that have been floating around about, you know, Jesus not really having been born as humans are. So, you know, for instance, like, uh, being cloned or um, being the result of a, you know, of a, a parthenogenesis type of um, reproduction, like, you know, in certain types of you know, very simple animal species. So it has a lot of implication that actually support the dogma of number one, the Immaculate Conception and the dogma of the, of the uh, virgin birth of Christ that are otherwise mm. not really explained in scientific terms. So you have to read the book to really understand all of this. <laughs> but, um, but it's very interesting. Father Dave, before we go any further, could you please explain in as much detail as you can, what a Eucharistic miracle actually is. Yeah, so as we explained last week, we tried to talk about what is the Eucharist, what is the Mass, and we kind of kept going down the rabbit hole of so many different images that are used in Scripture to try and explain this union that God desires between humanity and, and, and Jesus. And this whole idea of the fact that the bread and the wine actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. We kind of explained that a bit philosophically last time, but basically I think what this is, is that there's been a number of times in history where Jesus realizes it's hard to understand. And so he's actually shown us physically that the bread actually becomes flesh and the, the wine actually becomes blood. These are miracles which are ongoing in a sense, like the earliest one, when was Lanciano? So the earliest one was 700, you know, uh, AD, early middle ages. The latest one... Well, I think that, the earliest uh, one was 33 AD, but, you know, other than that... <laughs> yeah, not that, that, was the, that was the earliest Mass, but the earliest Eucharistic miracle. Uh, <laughs> but then, you know, the, the earliest ones that we've got are in the years 2000s. Actually, there, there are unfortunately two miracles that um, were destroyed. We, we don't have proof that there were miracles, but all the grounds were there for them to potentially be miraculous and the latest one was in 2018 in the buffalo diocese in um, the state of new york yeah. oh, wow. oh, for, for our listeners just to explain to put this in context you have never heard of a eucharistic miracle before one that i know fairly well because i actually went there was on the walk around the world i finished on the camino de santiago in northern spain and i stopped at the anyone who's done the camino will know the place o sobrero which is up it's one of the mountains in Spain on the Camino. And in that particular church, there was a Eucharistic miracle during the Middle Ages, I think. And what had happened there was that there was one particular peasant farmer who would walk. I'm going to take, just pluck a number out of the sky here and say 20 miles, but it was a long way. He'd walk 10 to 20 miles to get to mass every single day and he wouldn't miss it. On one particular day, uh, there was a, a 
big snowstorm. There was a blizzard. The priest went in to say mass. He's the only one there because no one can get there because of the blizzard. And not long after starting mass, this peasant farmer comes through the back door. He has made his way through this blizzard into the mass. And the priest actually felt a sense of uh, almost indignation towards this guy. He thought it was just ridiculous that he's put his life on the line to come to daily mass. And he just couldn't get his head around why the peasant farmer would do that. And during the consecration, the body of Christ turned to visible flesh in his hands. And the two of them adored Christ in the, in the physical flesh. Uh, and that, that priest had a, basically, even though he was a priest, had an enormous conversion at that point of the significance of the mass. So that was one case but the Osobrero one probably wouldn't have been in the book. It's not, as so far as I knew, it wasn't one of the most famous only ones. only got a selection of, a, you know, hundreds of them. You know, some Eucharistic miracles don't necessarily involve the transformation that, you, you know, um, we, uh, you know, most commonly think about. Some involve, for instance, like the preservation of hosts for ridiculous periods of times or, you know, the disappearance of hosts that, disappear in one trunk and then appear in someone's bedroom somewhere else. That was the Amsterdam miracle, for instance. It's a, wow. there, there's lots of types of miracles. The ones that are in the book uh, are the ones that, number one, still exists, that they still exist. And number two, they, they involve, you know, the transformation and, the, you know, the revealing of the species. And that can also be scientifically studied, that have been scientifically studied. Is so the one in the only book? A selection, yeah. Is there one in the book that mm. really strikes you? What's your favourite one? I think, look... <laughs> I was trying to think of a different way to say it, but that's what I meant. <laughs> I mean, they're all, they're all pretty amazing. Um, the one that struck me the most, perhaps, is the Buenos Aires one. So the Buenos Aires one was recognised as a sign rather than a, a miracle, although really it shares all the common traits of, you know, of, a, of a miracle that are in the other ones that have been recognized. But in the Buenos Aires one, which is a threefold event, so it's actually three different events, 1992, 1994, 1996, the 1996 host that also, it, well, it turned into blood and heart muscle tissue, was sampled and eventually the heart muscle tissue was taken to a very prominent New York-based forensic pathologist, Professor Zugabi. And what he found is that this tissue had very specific features of someone who had been traumatized in the chest, someone who had either been punched, you know, received blows, or someone that um, had just sustained an enormous psychophysical stress essentially what they found is there's certain features of the ways that the muscle fibers are damaged there are inflammatory cells such as white blood cells that are body's immune defense cells that are infiltrating the tissue so this is and, a person under immense stress yeah and it, and once that those findings are put together with the tixla which is a uh, Mexican miracle, where there are very similar features in the in the muscle tissue in, in that miracle as well, then there is a diagnosis that comes out of this. 
and it's quite narrow. So it's, it's really only two possibilities with the first one and most probable one is the technical name is stress-induced cardiomyopathy, which is also known as Takotsubo or broken heart syndrome. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but it does happen. It's a, it's a syndrome mm-hmm. that mimics that of a heart attack, although it happens in people that have a normal heart at baseline. They don't have a diseased heart from cholesterol, smoking, or the lot, you know, the common type of heart attack. It starts with a normal heart that's subjected to an, a huge emotional or physical <laughs> stress. It causes a storm of adrenaline, a storm of all the chemicals that are released when you're under such massive stress. And it causes spasms that are, can be so strong. One of the complications, you can actually get rupture of the heart muscle wall. And once you get rupture of the heart muscle wall, then the blood pulls in a sac that's called the pericardium that wraps the heart. And once it keeps pulling in that sac, then it exerts a mass effect that prevents the heart from really beating anymore. And it's called tamponade and that's deadly. You know, thinking that, you know, Jesus possibly died of literally a broken heart for us. I think it's extremely powerful, even in, you know, theological, spiritual terms of what that means. It's the physical suffering, the psychological suffering, the spiritual suffering, it's really proof that this suffering really happened in all of these dimensions. Now, can I put this into some sort of perspective? Because I have that medically. Uh, hmm. Can you name it again? I can never remember. The Takosuba. Takosuba uh, cardiomyopathy. Or stress cardiomyopathy. Induced. Yeah, cardiomyopathy. Hmm. Now, mine, I want to put this in perspective because mine's mild. Or was, was got a, mild. You've, you've got a medically diagnosed broken heart. Yeah. yeah. So and it's not quite but, that because there's there's lots of so cardiomyopathy is a broad term. Yeah. Now I want to put this in perspective because mine's mine's mild, mm-hmm. and in fact I haven't had an episode with my heart now for probably five to seven years. What brought it on was the walk around the world, and to put this into perspective, what brought on a mild myopathy was walking between 40 and 75 kilometers a day end on end week after week in russia and belarus which included straining both achilles tendons and tearing the cartilage in both knees four days apart four big injuries in four days meaning that i was then getting electric shocks through both knees i was in a lot of pain and couldn't sleep properly was then beaten up on the side of the road by two men in russia i've got scars across my hands from that fight had to run away from them which is really difficult when you've got those injuries and then eventually my heart it is difficult to describe you can actually feel it it's like a butterfly in your chest but there's no pulse it's, uh, it's just vibrating and fluttering away. And occasionally there was a proper beat, but we're talking between 30 to 60 minutes on end. I remember one particular night in Belarus where I just couldn't sleep because the adrenaline that was pumping was so intense that my heart's all over the place. Now, as it turns out, I wasn't in enormous danger. The cardiologist who ran a lot of tests basically said, look, you're really fit. Your heart's really fit. It's mild, even though that duration itself wasn't. That was quite severe. But all of that led to a mild myopathy. So something that leads to a severe myopathy is going to... Worth am I that. saying it correctly? Myopathy? Yeah, you're saying it correctly. Yeah. yeah. So something that brings out. across a, a severe cardiomyopathy is a lot more intense than that. 
and that in itself was intense enough. I don't want to ever repeat it. Yeah, I just want to point out that Dr. Burt's nodding to Sam's sob story, you know, understanding <laughs> what it actually means, not like the rest of us. <laughs> if that produces a mild, you know, if all of that only produces a mild effect, how, how, how bad? Yeah. The thing that fascinates me about this, so like if, if God is working these miracles, not only just to prove a doctrine, but to reveal yeah. something of his heart, you know, like the whole thing of we, we're not just saved by his suffering on the cross, we're saved by his love. And, and we need to encounter that love and meditate upon that love so that our hearts can be transformed. I think what Jesus is trying to say here is like, you're not just looking upon bread. Like, like when you gaze upon the elevated host at mass or when you go to pray in front of the blessed sacrament, you're actually gazing at his heart on the cross, beaten up and wounded and broken for you. That's the bit that blows my mind. Like mm. I, I mentioned to you guys how I was reading that Mike Willisie book, The Skeptic's Search for Meaning, and he talks about the Tixler miracle. And I've, I've never been able to go to adoration the same way since then. What is uh, the Tixler every, miracle? Uh, so, oh, you, so, you the, so the Tixler miracle is another one of the miracles mentioned in this book. It's officially recognized. And it involved essentially, it was immediate transformation of the host into blood and heart muscle tissue. And it happened during distribution of Holy Communion. I think it was a lay minister that was giving communion and just found in a ciborium that was a, a stained host. This is the one you know, that I mentioned to you in conjunction with the, the other one that really helped to narrow it down to this sort of tissue diagnosis, really. So what did you want to know specifically about the, the Tixler miracle? Well, I think that kind of explains it. Yeah, yeah that explains it. The, um, yeah, the famous one is the miracle of Lanciano. That's yes. one of the earliest ones. Also included. If, if you look on the internet, just look up Miracle of Lanciano. You'll see pictures of this. I've got it here. I had always <laughs> thought this weird because, I mean, firstly, I suppose you don't quite know what you're looking for when you look at the transformed Eucharist. What I, it was only when I was talking to Bert, he explained that it's actually like the cross section of the heart. Yes, is that so correct? what you see in there is, you know, imagine a heart, you cut a slice through the bottom end, which is like the tip, you know, it's almost triangular. You cut a slice through. This is what the host turned into. So oh, you've wow. got the heart muscle wall on the outside. And when you look at this under the microscope, they showed all the typical layers of a human heart. So there's the pericardium outside, the outer layer, there's the, the muscle wall, there's blood vessels and innervation in the muscle layer. There's the endocardium, which is the inner lining of the heart muscle. And then this is obviously dried and old, but they could also microscopically and, and macroscopically appreciate that the biggest cavity here is the biggest chamber of the heart, the left ventricle that pumps blood to the rest of the body. And then to the side, there is also just a, a hint of the right ventricle, which is the chamber that pumps blood into the lungs. So it's macroscopically makes sense microscopically as well. <laughs> so I just, just want to be hundred percent clear here. This is a host that yes. has been consecrated 1300 yes. years ago by a priest in Lanciano in Italy that miraculously turned into a cross section of a human heart that can still be analyzed now today. Yes. It's, it's dried, you know, they, they had to, they, yes, but they could still, um, rehydrate the tissue, stain it with the appropriate stains. And I can show you the microscope slides. I think you've got it here. 
So this is, this is a microscope slide of the heart muscle wall. Uh, you can see the fibers there and you can see the pericardium there. So you've got all the components. Then you've got down here, you can see there's a fatty deposit, which we all have. There's a nervous fiber structure in it. So this is stained with, you know, the usual stains that you, you would stain a, a biopsy specimen, you know, like when you have a biopsy to see is this cancer or not. If you look at this, this is another slice. So that's, you see this rugged edge. That's the inner chamber of the heart, which has this rugged appearance. So, you know, this is typical of heart muscle tissue. We're not just hypothesizing. It's, it's what it is. <laughs> it's amazing. And not, just, not, and not just a random sort of thing that could be recognized as heart tissue, but an actual piece. So it's like, you know, this you could, you could compare to, you know, if you go for an echo, you know, like a baseline echo that they do with the ultrasound probe and they put the probe on your chest and you get the ultrasound waves through your heart and you see this image, which is a cross section. This is like a, an echo of Jesus. Jesus is Wow. I heard mm. years ago of a, a Eucharistic miracle uh, involving the blood of Christ. And what I'd heard was that on a particular feast day, the congealed blood would actually liquefy. San Gennaro. <laughs> oh, here we go. Good. I, I, I haven't heard anything else about it since. Can you tell us anything about that? To be honest, I, I really don't have an opinion. On it. I have not really ever looked into it much. Oh, it's not in the book? It's not in the book. Everyone named Gennaro comes from Naples. It's not, it's not Jesus' blood. It's, it's, you know, it's San Gennaro's blood. So, you know. Yeah, so it's, it's um, the blood of a saint, not blood of, a saint. of Jesus. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was just. So recently. it's a miracle, but it's not a Eucharistic miracle. Yes, it, 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 it happens periodically on yeah. the feast day. Yeah. I probably can't really give an informed opinion on that. <laughs> that's, that's fine. I'm going to look it up now. The thing that fascinates me about this is that if this is a fraud, it's the most well orchestrated fraud probably ever in human history. It can't be a fraud. So, <laughs> so it, you know, and. What's interesting in this book is that the author also discusses three important relics, uh, passion relics, that are the Shroud of Turin, the Sudarium of Oviedo, that's in Spain, mm-hmm. and the Tunic of Argentour, which is in near Paris. And what it do- he does is, first of all, he dismantles all the false claims against these relics of in being fakes. The most well-known ones against the Shroud of Turin is the radiocarbon dating, which has now been accepted as unreliable by the same university that published it in the beginning. Oxford yeah, the, the very same, the very same doctor who published it has said it. Yeah, so the radiocarbon dating is no longer a thing to say. Oh, they're not real. The radiocarbon date is wrong. It's just too. The data is too heterogeneous. It just doesn't make any sense. There's lots more other research that has been done on these relics that actually proves that they're likely they're very likely to be true relics what's common is that they're completely in keeping with the same features of the eucharistic miracles so they also have ab blood on all three of them which is not just a contamination it was it's been looked at properly so it's the same blood type in all of them it's the same blood type in the Eucharistic miracles. So once you add up, you know, the statistical chance that 
you know, this is due to chance, you know, it's all orchestrated. That all of these different hoaxes have been done like with the same blood type. It's, it's essentially mind-blowingly impossible. And, well, particularly when you consider that it a lot is. of these miracles were pre our medical knowledge of, of blood types. So no one could really know, uh, you know, the blood types were discovered in, you know, early 1900s. Before then, they had no idea what they were. So, you know, you couldn't have possibly, you know, slaughtered five different people, taken bits of hearts out of them, you know, knowing that they were all AB, knowing that you would always get the same pathological features on the heart muscle. It's just not plausible. Uh, I'm going to ask a question. Do certain ethnic groups have a higher percentage of certain blood types? Yes. When you look at AB, and it's much better explained in the book, AB is rare. It's extremely rare. Worldwide, it's only 1% to 5% of the population. What's more interesting about the Middle Eastern origin is probably the DNA data that comes out of the tunic of Argentina in from France because that one has actually been sequenced well it's been profiled and the DNA profile that emerges from that one is a is a typical Middle Eastern type mm. which is not What's let's the... say it's not it's not Chinese you know it's not <laughs> it's not African it's it, yeah. it, it's not just European so yeah there's good concordance what, there what's the the tunic of what what whatever i can't remember what what's the background the french one the french one what's the background of that cloth it's a very unknown relic there are a few other tunics around in europe that are supposedly fakes because <laughs> they can't all be true right but but this one mm. to be honest i don't the, the story is all in the book i, I translated it a while ago and I, don't, I don't remember all the details but it's it's also gone through a lot of things throughout history so uh, is this is this the of, is this the tunic that Jesus worn by had Jesus. stripped had stripped yeah, from him yeah, at crucifixion? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Ah. Yeah. So that's a very important from a genetic DNA point of view. the The shroud and the sudarium are also very interesting, not just because they share the same blood type, but because of the study on the stains. The blood stains on the shroud of Turin are on the face. They are remarkably overlapping the stains on the sudarium of Oviedo. So if you, if you overlap them 3D, you get overlapping. Mm. If you bled in one spot, you soak through both sheets. So the sudarium yeah. face covering? That's yes. the face so the covering. The sudarium is the face covering. Yep. It doesn't actually reveal any face. If you go look at the sudarium, it's not recognizable as a human face. Who knows the way that Jesus' body was exactly erect, but it, it seems like the, the same stains on the face of the Shroud of Turin the ones that are present on the sudarium are overlapping and are key stains that are overlapping. Mm. Mm. And the same, there are same pollens, there are same contaminants, similar contaminants. So it's all matching very, too, too well. <laughs> yeah. What I find yeah. absolutely amazing about Eucharistic miracles is that we often want God to appear now so that we can believe or we can have it out or ask the really big questions and Christ appears to us in the form of broken heart muscle. So incredibly humble. And I think the key thing to realize is it's, he's not appearing as like dead heart muscle, but as living heart muscle. Living heart muscle, yes. Mm. It's very important. So because there's three presences of Jesus, if you will, you have the historical presence. So that would have left biological marks on you know the relics. Biological 
marks of a mortal body. And then you have, well, obviously the natural presence, the right hand of God, which is the glorified presence. And then you have the Eucharistic or sacramental presence. And what you see in the Eucharistic miracles, what seems to come through is the glorified presence. So you have a biology that's not disordered. It's not just utterly bizarre. It has, it's ordered, but we don't understand all of it. Some of it we can't make sense of, like say the DNA that escapes the probe, because it's probably following laws the ultimate fulfillment of our current biological laws outside space and time. It's, you know, when those will be fulfilled rather than uh, disrespected. In a, in a glorified body. You probably end up in a situation where you have this glorified biology. You know, the DNA, for instance, the one reflection that's in the book about the DNA not letting itself be profiled is that all this junk DNA that apparently has no use. I mean, maybe who knows, maybe we'll find out that it has a use, but so far no one's really found out what we have. We carry this burden of junk DNA that doesn't code for any genes. It's useless. One hypothesis is that in our glorified biology or cells, then we'll shed all this useless DNA will no longer be necessary. And so therefore we'll also be unidentifiable with those genetic probes because we won't have, the sequences just won't be there, you know, it will be irrelevant. So that's one thing. But then one other, uh, it's important thing when, when Father Dave said the tissues were alive, they were at least alive at the time of sampling. So we know that the Lanchana one was alive at the time of sampling when it was put in the, in the monstrance because there is evidence of shrinking of the heart muscle, which you would get with rigor mortis. And if you know what rigor mortis is, but basically it's the stiffening yeah. of the body and all the muscle tissues after death. So it was alive, otherwise it wouldn't have contracted. But if you look at the more recent ones, uh, like the Buenos Aires ones, the Tixla one, the Polish ones, then you find, for instance, the, you know, well, the Polish ones don't have the presence of, of white blood cells, but the Tixla and Buenos Aires certainly do have the presence of immune, you know, immune system, blood, white blood cells that are infiltrating the tissue as if they were repairing an injury or a trauma. These blood cells, if you took a biopsy, they would only survive living only for minutes. Whereas these specimens were poorly preserved in, you know, awful conditions, um, certainly not in a sterile environment, certainly not frozen at minus 80 degrees in a lab like you would do with a biopsy specimen. And months later, you could still see these cells. And you could also appreciate that they were active on the mic when they were immortalized on the microscope slide. That's very important. And, you know, it really goes against normal, ordinary biology. And the mm. other thing that uh, sort of it's worth thinking about and get your head around is that white blood cells are not produced in heart muscle tissue. They come to the inflamed heart muscle, the traumatized heart from elsewhere in the body. So they come from a mystical biology, a mystical body that's united with the fragment on, on the miracle. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, there's another, even more remarkably, the Tixla miracle has been looked at with some special microscopy and it looks like uh, there's a wound. There's a wound in the host. So the, the degree of compenetration between the part that's turned into tissue and the, the bread of the host is not, it's not just a stain, something put on top of it, stained on top. It comes from within mm. the host. It behaves like a wound. In fact, there's a scab on top. And once 
you remove the scab, you still find fresh blood under it, like if it was a bleeding <laughs> vessel under it. Can I ask a very personal question, Bert? How has this affected your personal faith? I have been quite moved by this book. You know, I wouldn't have translated it. To me, it speaks a lot because at work, you know, this is what I do. I collect blood every day. You know, I often look at wounds. I put my fingers into the wounds of people to see how deep they go, to see if I can close them. From here on, we'll call you Thomas. You know, it's, <laughs> it's my job, you know, it really speaks to what I do. And it, you know, it really makes me think there's really God in my patients, you know, because yeah. this is the body of a suffering patient where I'm mm. seeing God, essentially, you know. The book has just been taken up by Sophia Press. Yeah, so apparently Sophia Press, Sophia Institute in the States offered to publish it. And I'm really hoping that it will come out by the end of this year. Oh, great, because I want a copy. Yes. So, um, yes. <laughs> it's been a lot of hard work. <laughs> so at the moment, it's called The Cardiologist of Jesus. Yes, roughly. I have to work on the title or come up with a, you know, a proper title. But... <laughs> Well, Bert, would you be happy to close us in prayer in any way you feel fit? I think Father Dave is much better than this. <laughs> <laughs> well, well it's delegated. Well qualified. <laughs> straight over to the priest. <laughs> Lord, we thank you that you are constantly trying to reveal yourself to us. This enormous love you have for us that was revealed on the cross and that you now reveal again and again through the Eucharist. We pray that you take us deeper so that our hearts can be moved by the love of your heart. Lord, we just pray that all those who are listening will just have a deeper love and appreciation of the Eucharist to encounter the, the miracle they see every time they go to Mass. Lord, we just pray your blessing on us here and all those who are listening. Pray your blessing, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. thank you no problems anytime <laughs> enjoy your your long stay in darwin yes <laughs> father dave please let us know when that book comes out yeah so franco serafini is the author okay it's not it's not my work it sounds like it's where it's not my work it's his work i'm merely the translator <laughs> <laughs> but is it alberto umberto umberto Villa.